Welcome to the Take 92 podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I'm your host. And if you are new to this show, I am a punk singer, an MC, producer, and we talk all kinds of independent music. My guest today is Taylor Morton, a good friend who is directing a brand new ska documentary called Pick It Up. It's about all our favorite bands from the 90s. So let's hear how this project came to be and where it's headed. Taylor, welcome. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. Of course. I have been, I think and hope, your biggest cheerleader for this project. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and I've been really looking forward to it. First of all, this is your second film. Yeah. The, the first film was about a band that the name sort of sounded familiar, but I couldn't tell you any of their songs. And then I watched it and I was like, yeah, I definitely don't know any of these songs. <laughs> And, and yet I loved it, mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed uh, the movie and hearing their stories, and I, I thought it turned out great. And so, you know, I, I was just going to check it out as like, oh, my friend's got a movie that's playing in the theater. I got to go watch that. And I walked away from it really enjoying it, and I bought the DVD, and I watched it a couple more times, and, and uh, I thought it was a really well-done project. So... Uh, I come to this not just as like a fan of the subject matter and someone who's known you a long time, but I genuinely see a, a, a good filmmaker in you as well. Wow. Well, thank you. That's, that's very, very kind, uh, especially coming from someone who wasn't familiar with the subject matter. Uh, when we make documentaries, those are the hardest people, you know, to convince a lot of the times I, I picture myself trying to get someone who doesn't like ska music to watch this next one and then win them <laughs> over somehow it's like a, a a life goal for me yeah totally it's like oh yeah my little brother was in a ska band maybe right. i should check this out you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah my my geeky cousin was in the marching band. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, no. Like, did, didn't he wear a lot of checkers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's ska, right? That's, yeah, that's ska. Yeah. Yeah. So y your origins in the genre date back 20 plus years, mm -hmm. uh, right? I mean, when did you first uh, pick up the trumpet in a band setting? Uh, in a ska band setting... I started playing in a band called 007 in Eugene, Oregon. Um, <laughs> don't, don't say it like that. People actually think that's how you say it. I know. It's my favorite thing <laughs> to say it like but you, that. But now you're from here and you say it <laughs> and they're going to be like, oh, I was right all along. <laughs> right. And it emboldens them. And I love that. <laughs> uh, no, in Eugene, Oregon, in 1998 is when I started playing with them. And they had already been a band for a little while, so I kind of jumped right in, uh, filling in for their trumpet player. And the first week, I think, that I was playing with them, we opened for the Mad Caddies at the Wow Hall. And wow. I, I got a taste for it, and it's been a huge part of my life ever since. That's awesome. I didn't realize that uh, you were just thrown right into it like yeah. that. Yeah, hey, I, I know you just tried out the other day, but uh, we've got this show this weekend. <laughs> It'd be great if you think you could learn the rest of the set. 
Yeah, that's and great. And I'd I... never played in a real band or at a real venue before, so I didn't know what that meant. So literally your first show ever was at the Wow Hall? Yes. Now, you guys might not know this, but if you're from here, that's like the coolest fucking all-ages place in town. Uh, it's been there since the 1800s. That's uh, where I saw my first show, you know, uh, it, that, yeah, that's that's so exciting. Yeah. Um, it did take to, me many to, years uh, to be able to play there again after that. <laughs> yes. I know that feeling. Yeah, I didn't know it was such an accomplishment at the time. Yeah, see, I started uh, also in 98 with my first band, but we didn't play a show uh, until end of 99. Yeah. And I didn't play the Wow Hall until 2002. So it took me four years uh, to get on that stage. <laughs> it took me four and, days. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> now, obviously, you have a deep love for the for the genre. Well, I'd like to establish because people are going to think like, "Oh, is this just like a '90s nostalgia project?" But w- what drew you to the music in the first place? Like, what what do you remember that really opened your eyes and 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 made you see something different in this kind of music? Well, I came at it from the angle of playing in the school band and being what some people would call a band geek, you know, playing the trumpet and watching all my friends play in like punk rock bands and being so jealous, like, oh man, if only I played the drums, I could be playing these grain shows or whatever, or these house parties, but I play the trumpet and that's not useful at all. And nobody, nobody cool is playing brass instruments. Then I think it was 97. I had a lot of friends who were into music, but they were also uh, the Christian kids. And they were only allowed to listen to Christian music. They had this cassette tape of this band called Five Iron Frenzy. And uh, somebody let me borrow it. And I'm sure I made a copy. And it just, it blew my mind that people who were playing these uh, trumpets, trombones, saxophones in this, like, for lack of a better word, punk rock music. I didn't know what ska was, but I was like, wow, this is a really cool thing that you can do with this instrument that I already kind of know how to play. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think I probably listened to that for a few weeks, and then I remember doing a... Uh, one of those Columbia House things where you order 12 CDs for a penny. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, it might have been cassette tapes. I don't remember. But um, in that first 12, I remember I got, uh, I had heard about the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones from Clueless, like a lot of yeah. people did. But it didn't really catch with me. Wait, what did they, with me. hang on, what did, they, what did they play in that one? Was it Someday, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I remember thinking, hey, that was like that same kind of thing almost where they had a trombone in there, I'm pretty sure. But, you know, yeah. this was, I didn't have the movie on VHS or anything. I was just going from memory from the theater two years earlier. And um, so I got the Clueless soundtrack and the Boss Tones. Um, God, which album would that have been? Well, that probably would have been Question the Answers. Yeah, yeah. Question the Answers and the Clueless soundtrack um, and Rancid's Outcome the Wolves were in that Columbia House order. Oh, great. And so that, you know, and then 
And this was before Let's Face It and Turn the Radio Off by Real Big Fish had come out. Yeah. So So it wasn't it wasn't quite everywhere yet. Right. It was about to be. <laughs> but I didn't know that. I was just, you know, enamored with this music that was played on these instruments that I already loved. And then That's kind of cool cuz it it just shows you like, oh shit, there is a place for me in that yeah, thing that I've wanted. Exactly. You know? Like loving these punk rock band, you know, listening to Lagwagon and and Pennywise and stuff like that. And then, oh, you can do that, but with the instrument that I know how to play, I'm sold. I'm in. Yeah. I'm, I'm so in. So I came at it from that angle, and it was probably five years before I even knew that there had been ska music before then. I kind of just wanted to touch on this because, you know, on my show, I I talk a lot about growing up on punk rock and you know we talk a lot about Mm hip-hop i don't want to undersell the importance of the ska bands in my life especially in those formative years because i think that i don't talk about it as much because you know when my band started the guy who became our bass player for years and years and years all the way into dfs chris wilson he was actually uh, playing trumpet in the band, um, and we were playing. We were playing real big fish covers like beer. We were playing Les and Jake like Johnny Quest thinks were sellouts, and um, playing mighty mighty Boston's and you know stuff like that. And that that's what we started playing. And then our bass player was terrible, and Crosby filled in for a little while. And eventually Chris became our bass player, and we just stripped down to like just guitars, bass, and you know drums, and we're playing punk rock. And and so before we ever played a show, we went through that that cycle but wow um, i didn't know that that's awesome yeah yeah <laughs> nobody really does i think i mentioned it briefly in in my book but it's it's not something we ever did publicly right and s- some of the first shows i ever saw like the first punk show i went to was also the first ska show i ever went to it was not just all in good riddance but it was less than jake on the hello rock view tour yeah and you know shortly after that i saw real big fish up in portland at the uh la luna um when they were playing i don't remember if it was might have been right before Why Do They Rock So Hard came out. Because I remember like, an, a, like a different version of Thank You For Not Moshing. Mm. <laughs> um, like the first time I heard it yeah. um, was there. And on top of that, when I was first getting into like the, the radio station here was NRQ, as you know, mm-hmm. that played like 90s alternative when that stuff was happening. And, you know, I got like uh, Beck, Odelay, and I got Green Day, Insomniac, and I got In Utero from Nirvana. And, you know, and then my friends played me No Effects and Pennywise. And so I was really getting into the, like, the more angsty, aggressive kind of music mm-hmm. that really shaped my, my worldview. And, and specifically, I would say getting into a lot of those bands, like, just a few years after they broke. And so I'm getting into their sequel albums that are more raw and more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was a big influence on me. However, almost immediately after that, Steve, my stepdad, bought me a copy of Let's Face It. Mm-hmm. To this day, it might not be my favorite Boston's album, but the lyrics on that album and on Question the Answers mm-hmm. that, came, uh, that I bought right after that, you know, as you start to dig right. back, like, oh, I love this band. Do they have other records, you know? Yeah. I feel like made such a, an impression on me because all those other bands, you know, were aggressive and rebellious and, and you know, they had that thing that you feel as a, middle school mm-hmm. you know teenager but you know the boss tones are singing songs about 
I'm getting robbed by a guy and you know he's beating the shit out of me and I can tell by the look in his eyes that he's addicted to drugs you know he's not even like present in his head and I'm listening to uh, uh, on question the answers they have this song about like the kind of a neighborhood gang you know mm-hmm. I think it's called a sad silence yeah you know and they, t- they talk about this dude who was feared and respected in the neighborhood and you know he would crack heads and keep people in line and then one day you know it's like doing crack his eyes eyes rolled up like yesterday he started falling back you know no one spoke no one moved no one made a sound it was like damn you know like in songs like guns and the young and songs like let's face it uh about racism Mm -hmm. and sexism and there was such a positivity in that you know or 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 less than jake talking about these like these growing pains and these coming of age stories that like all my best friends are metalheads has like a silly name but you know like did you take the time to really discover how little we know about each other and uh, <laughs> yeah. there's there there's so there's so much in those songs they weren't just like fun catchy songs they weren't just punk rock songs like they had such a a different perspective like do you feel that that resonated with you as well at that time yeah i mean but besides just really being into the music. Yeah, and I don't think I was going there for like, oh, wow, listen to his messages. But right. in time, right. in time, I can tell that, that like that really rubbed off on me at, at an impressionable time. But, but yeah, of course, it was for the music. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Especially with Less Than Jake for me, listening to like Hello Rock View and Losing Streak. Yeah. I was like just at the right age to start really listening to lyrics and... and caring about what they were talking about. And I think a lot of sort of my um, do-it-yourself attitude that I've, I've always had came from listening to, like, Losing Streak and <laughs> Less Than Jake's DIY attitude rubbed off on me, I think, in a big way back then. Yeah, which is interesting because Losing Streak was the first one that I got from them as well. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, if you listen to, to those records, you know, they're very, you know, DIY sounding mm-hmm. records. And yet, if you look at it, they're on Capitol, you know, like this was actually a major <laughs> label release. And if you were to think of that, like nowadays, you would never hear a big label putting out something that sounded like that. Right. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of great that they were able to get a platform without changing their sound at all. Yeah. I mean, because they just did it. They just uh, had that attitude of, like, this is what we are. Take it or leave it. I think that's kind of why they're one of the bands that's still out there today, still doing it. Yeah, I mean, they were workhorses. Uh, I, I remember... They still are. Um, I think it was in Borders and Boundaries. They were, like, X amount of thousand miles, X amount of cups of coffee, X amount of cigarettes, you know, right. went into the the tours that and shows that have led us to you know, to this point or something. Mm-hmm. These guys have just been slumming it in vans for their entire lives, just on the grind. You know, they're like a, they're kind of like the bouncing souls of ska, mm-hmm. you know, like they're not necessarily the first band people will mention, you know, right. like usually people I feel like would gravitate towards the Boston's a real big fish when they think of ska, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you would think of like, no effects or bad religion when you think of punk. Right. But if you look at a band like Bouncing Souls or Less Than Jake, those are the guys who have 
endured every season and built this thing, mm -hmm. you know, completely for themselves, by themselves, and they're still going strong to this day. I mean, yeah, the fact that their new shit, and I'm talking like See the Light that came out a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm talking their new EP that came out, uh, I think, last year. God, I've been... I've been listening to that EP like two, three times a week lately. It's just, nice. it's so good. Yeah. And they've never lost that same heart, you know? Right. And it helps that they're one of the few bands that still has pretty much their original lineup 20 something years later. Aside from maybe a, a horn change or two, right? Yeah. I think their sax player is the new guy at like 15 years or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, that's somebody who's bounced around from, you know, capital to fat to putting out their own music. And wherever they are, it, it has never changed who they were. Mm -hmm. God, I just, I just respect that so much. Um, it must be crazy to you because I know as you're like texting me updates, I've had a little behind the scenes knowledge here mm -hmm. throughout this project. And I'm like, holy shit, you got to sit down with so-and-so. <laughs> like, it must be crazy right. to you these last few months of getting to not just, you know, shake hands with your favorite bands, but actually sit down with them and, and talk about their experience. Yeah. I mean, that's been just insane. And I, I have to keep reminding myself what, you know, 16-year-old me would think. If I, if I could go back and tell myself, right. hey, one day you're going to sit down with, you know, Real Big Fish and Less Than Jake and talk for hours about, you know, all your favorite records and all this time in, in the music world that kind of meant the most to me, you know, at that age. I don't think there's a subgenre of music that means as much to me or like impacted my life as much so being able to talk with the people who made that music about making that music is just insane but yeah you got to get past that sort of oh my god i'm sitting down and talking with this person and, <laughs> and get into the conversation the more that i've been playing music and sharing stages with people that i have long admired and people that are, have been in my record collection since high school mm -hmm. or middle school or whatever, you know, you get the butterflies at first, you know, when these things start happening, but kind of as you get more used to it, it's really humanizing mm -hmm. in just reminding you that like, dude, we're all just music nerds. Like we're all the same people. Like what if I've spent enough time at a couple shows playing with, you know, my favorite artists, you know, I don't even look at them all starry eyed anymore after that. Right. It's kind of, I don't know if this happened to you, but it changes the way that I, I respect them even more as like human beings as opposed to like a poster on my wall. Yeah. You know, that I glamorized or romanticized or something. It's like, it's like, oh, wow, look at my friend out there. He's, he's killing it. Mm -hmm. And you're watching people crying. They're so excited to see, you know, <laughs> like their, their favorite artists. And I was just like, yeah, I don't remember how many shows we've done together now, but, uh, but his new set's really good as right. opposed to just like, you know. <laughs> totally fanning out and and uh i don't know it's it's really changed the way that i see people mm -hmm. that, have you had that kind of experience the more you sit down with these guys yeah yeah for sure and it's the same with bands that i've played with and, and open for over the years you know if you spend any real amount of time with with your heroes they become 
people. They're no longer, like you said, a poster on the wall. So it's, it's um, definitely a different perspective once you get past that hurdle of, oh my God, you wrote my favorite song, to, okay, we're yeah. all just people and... You know, your job at that time was to write these songs, and what was that like? My job right now is to now, make the movie about that. Yeah, and I know that Real Big Fish is particularly huge in, in your life and getting to, to work with them on this project. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to point out that one of my favorite Sky albums ever is one of yours, actually, <laughs> and that is Many Faces by Pocket Face. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. that's both you and your producer, Ray, yep. in high school, no less. And I still feel like it holds up so well. It never came out in the U.S., and so I had a, like a CDR of it for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And eventually I found some in Japan, where you guys actually had a label for mm-hmm. it, on eBay. <laughs> and so... I ordered a copy of it that I sent to uh, Munch, your uh, uh, f- former singer in that band, yeah. and and uh, and I kept one for myself, the the Japanese import, yeah, because I fucking love that CD. <laughs> it's very like, it's it's very much in that like why do they rock so hard era of like the extra guitar riffy mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. kind of shit. But uh, man, you guys really were were onto something cool with that. I I could just hear so much of that. RBF influence that uh, I was like extra excited when I saw that you got to sit down with Aaron. I was like, oh, I know that one means a lot. Yeah. I mean, Real Big Fish meant a lot. Even back in my uh, 007 days, there was um, back in the day when the internet was very young, I I think we had like a real player or like a yeah. mp3.com kind of. I don't know, somehow we had a clip of a song on the internet in terrible quality. And I remember I I reached out to Real Big Fish somehow, like sent him the clip. And Aaron wrote me back huh. like, an email that said, hey, cool, sounds good, send me a CD. And I mailed the CD. And this was 99. This was our, um, our like first full length release and I sent it to him and I followed up because his email address was at AOL.com and at that time <laughs> there was AOL Instant Messenger. So yeah. I sent an instant message, hey did you get that C D? This is Taylor, by the way, from the band 007. And yeah. he would like chat me back here and there. And it was wow. the craziest thing. To me, like, oh my God, my favorite band is chatting me. And I was like only half sure it was actually him, you know? <laughs> sure. Well, but then in the movie, I don't know if you're headed to this conclusion right now, but uh, I saw that he has that record on his iPod yeah. to this day. That's the end of the story is he he um, was really into the record and let us actually open some shows. We opened for Rubik Fish with Sum 41 right before Sum 41 wow. got big in Eugene and Portland. And um, it made a huge difference to me at that age. And I told him that. And he said, oh, that's cool. What was the name of your band? And I said, 007. And he said, no way. I still have that in my iPod. And I was just listening to it last (laughs) week. And I said, well, there's no way 
that you, I mean, you're just saying that to be nice, right? Yeah, it's, it's that doesn't exist. It's literally 20 no years way. later, there's no way that's true. And he said, no, 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 I really liked you guys. You had that song that went, and then he sang one of our songs to me. <laughs> and went out to his wow. car and grabbed his iPod and showed it to me. And I was like, that was one of those moments in making this one. I'm like, oh my God, is this real That's life? That's great. Tell me about the Kickstarter, because this is super impressive. <laughs> <laughs> you guys hit goal in a week, and it was a, it was a lofty goal yeah. as well. Maybe not for a film. But for, uh, uh, for a Kickstarter, you know, for us little <laughs> yeah. guys, for us little guys here in Eugene, Oregon, you know, that's pretty unheard of. So, so tell me about that process. Yeah. So we've been kind of in the back of my mind this whole time. We were thinking we're going to do a Kickstarter because it's expensive to make a movie. And I've basically been using all the money I made from my last movie to fund this. And it ran out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I've been spending money pretty frivolously thinking, well, we got to get to a certain point so we have something to show people so we can do the Kickstarter. And in doing that, we had a Facebook and Instagram and we started to kind of build a, an audience showing little behind the scenes stuff here and there. And, and we built it up a little bit. And well, I was like, damn, he's got more followers than me in three days. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys caught on pretty quick, I'd say. Yeah, people seem to relate to what we were trying to do. There are more people out there that love 90s ska music than I thought there were, for sure. So we launched the Kickstarter uh, quietly just to our email list just over a week ago. It, got, it did pretty well. Our goal was 40000 and I think we did five or six in that first weekend just to our shh, keep it quiet email list people. Well, yeah, because you, you said, hey, we're, we're dropping this on Monday. Yeah. Figured you'd want to know. And I was like, whoa, this already has like, you know, $3,500 on it. That's crazy. And then I checked again. That was Friday. And I checked again on Sunday. I was like, wow, this sounds like five grand. I was like, wow, this is crazy. It hasn't even opened. And then day one, you guys hit 10000 yeah. yeah, day one, once we did our, our release. And our release was just Instagram and Facebook. Um, and we sent out a press yeah. release, but nobody really picked it up that first day. And we just told people. And we begged so the 10, bands to share it. In, in one day, on word of mouth. Yeah. Um, were you shitting your pants? I was, yeah, I did not think it was going to do that well that quickly. I thought, you know, 40000 it's a lofty goal, but it's kind of the bare minimum to make a, a real documentary that has, you know, distribution potential. And yeah. so I was like, well, that's kind of where we need to be. And if we're lucky, I set the goal a little longer. I set it for 38 days instead of 30 because I was scared that we wouldn't make it in 30 days. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And then we made it in five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a, a lot of these fundraisers, like, if you don't hit the goal, you don't get the yeah, money. and this is one of those for sure. It was an all or nothing. Exactly. And so, so yeah, you want to give yourself plenty of time going like, oh, shit, I hope we can pull this off. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, by Friday, yeah. you guys hit by Friday the 40,000 mark. So we launched it Monday morning, word of mouth style, and we got a few good, like press, like the AV Club picked it up, and uh, I think Slash Film is talking about it now. But by Friday, it was Friday morning. We'd hit our goal, and we were not at all prepared for that. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> we yeah. were still working on the, the promo campaign for like, all right, then we're going to give away these prizes and then we're going to do this and then maybe we'll get people to the goal. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll get people to talk about right. it for the second week. Right, right. We're <laughs> like right now I'm, I'm doing this podcast and I thought we were going to be begging people. Like I thought we'd be at maybe 10 grand doing podcasts, yeah. begging for people to fill the gap. But instead we're talking about how amazing the Scott community is and how grateful we are that we did hit the goal so quickly. And it's, it's just crazy. It's phenomenal. And it just shows how many people were truly touched by the, these bands mm -hmm. and these songs. What, what were some of the other memorable interviews that you, that you did? Cause I mean, we had a long list of our, our favorite bands yeah. Uh, that was kind of a wish list, I remember. <laughs> and you got to sit down with Travis Barker or, or you know, the guys from Less Than Jake yeah. or so many people. What was something that, that really was special for you, that caught you by surprise? The one, the one that was the most special to me was uh, when we interviewed Karina from the Dance Hall Crashers over... In, oh, yeah. Was that at Fat yeah, Records? At, at Fat Records in San Francisco. We interviewed her. Yeah. And... They're one of those bands. I never got to see them live when they were still playing. And they're definitely one of my favorite ska bands for sure. And it's just something about their, like the vocal harmonies. They always have those two-part, you know, vocal harmonies that as a pretty much full-time backup singer is like my favorite yeah. thing in the world. <laughs> like. They were really, they had a smoothness to their vocals. Yeah, and it's just, and they had unique harmonies, like they wouldn't always match perfectly. You know, mm -hmm. one would stay kind of on a drone note and the other one would move around, then they'd move and it would change. They were just really clever about how they did all that and it sounded amazing. And that resonated with me from the first time I heard the Dancehall Crashers. And so sitting at Fat Records, talking with Karina from the Dancehall Crashers about vocal harmonies something that probably <laughs> won't make it into the movie it was like maybe just for me but that that yeah, conversation totally. was was like one of those life-changing moments that you never think you're gonna have totally and i know that um has this not to get uh too far off topic but um i know you have uh gone through some shit yeah and, um, you know, it's been kind of a rough year as well. And on top of that, you're, you're putting on uh, or you're, you're putting so much of yourself into this project. I know you were flying all over mm -hmm. and renting cars and driving everywhere and, you know, really busting ass to try to get, you know, any of these interviews, you know, whether it's at festivals mm -hmm. or, or, or just wherever. Um, and it was such a grind. Yeah. Are, are you able to enjoy this moment a little bit right now like are, are, are you are you able to absorb some of this positivity and, and how exciting this is or is it still just at such a pace that your head is spinning um a little bit like friday when we hit our goal i was super excited but i was also like oh man i gotta make all these graphics for the stretch goals and do all these things that i wasn't planning on having to do yeah. yet you know we got to do a new press release that says we we hit our goal in the first week and all this stuff. So it's actually still just a really stressful time. And we're not 
done filming. So like while the Kickstarter is going, I'm communicating with people and scheduling and working out logistics for the rest of the shoot so that we're not delayed by a month sitting around watching a Kickstarter go. Yeah. Because the last thing we want to do is is disappoint all the people who are supporting us and have it not come out as soon as it possibly can. But at the same time, it's a lot. It's We're trying to do a, as good a job as we can. And so it it's just... It's just a constant, <laughs> it's constant work. If it's not planning, it's editing or doing the Kickstarter and the Instagram and the Facebook. And it's, people don't always realize, but like I'm directing the movie, but I'm also doing all of these other things. It's not like we have this huge Oh, I crew. get it. You get it. Yes. <laughs> I'm talking about yeah. people. People see a movie and they see there's a hundred people in the credits. This one, it'll have a hundred people, but most of them are thank yous. For the Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about a little bit of the the, the story and what what you're going to touch on in in the film. I'm curious if there's going to be any talk about like Scott was so big for a minute mm-hmm. that even bands like you mentioned Rancid mm-hmm. or I could throw in No Effects or some others that are were pretty much straight punk bands. Mm-hmm that would bust out a ska song from time to time right. because it was that irresistible. Uh, I wonder, is that something that you were going to touch on at all? Were you going to speak with any of those bands that are kind of outside of the core of it? Yeah, I mean, I I think, from my point of view, one of the be- best examples of that is, um, is Goldfinger, honestly. Like, yes. they were, yes. you know, this, this band that could kind of do anything. They were kind of a go with the flow chameleon kind of band but some of their biggest songs were ska songs but they i don't think they set out to be a ska band it's not like they ever had a horn section or anything and and we talked with darren about that and it's just it kind of was the times they would play a little bit of ska and then see how the audience reacted and they would love it and so they would play more ska it was pretty straightforward like that (laughs) Or, you know, these bands would tour together, like the Mad Caddies were on Fat, and so they would tour with all these punk bands. And, you know, that you rub off on each other. They started playing more punk, and some of the punk bands started playing a little bit of ska. That makes sense about Goldfinger reacting to their shows, because they were one of those workhorse bands as well. Like, uh, if I remember correctly, they had a Guinness record for most shows in in a single year. And I can't imagine anyone has topped it. Yeah, because uh, it was over um, three hundred sixty-five. Yeah, it was like three hundred seventy-five shows. Yeah, or something yeah like we that. talked with, was, with Darren about insane. that a little bit because, yeah, to do that and especially as a drummer, can you imagine doing two or oh, three fuck. Goldfinger sets in a day? And he is such a—he's like a Bill Stevenson type drummer. Mm-hmm. You know, his right hand has always got that like Trey Cool steady mm-hmm. on the on the eighth note. He had such signature fills that they were like you'd sing along to them, right. you know? Yeah. And so it's not like he's out there half-assed and no. it's like, no, he's got to, he's got to play every little flourish just how you remember. Cause you're, you're beatboxing that from the crowd when you're singing along, right. you know? Right. And some of that is cause maybe they didn't have a horn section. So the drums were a little bit more of a lead instrument. That's true. That's true. And, and on the records, you would hear those yeah. parts and live, um, they made up for that in just pure energy. Yeah. Uh, they were one of those bands who would bring up 
50 people from the crowd on stage, you yeah. know, to do Mabel. I remember they did that once uh, when I, I saw them and, and Real Big Fish, and you were probably there. But, <laughs> probably. Uh, yeah, I remember me and my wife, we both got pulled up on stage, you know, to sing Mabel with, like, 50 other nice. people. It was like, this is the most fun I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, they were a band I didn't get into until later. Like, I don't know, for whatever reason, they weren't on my radar until Tony Hawk. And then I went back and really? listened to their self-titled record, and I was like, oh, my God, where has this been all my life? I heard self-titled, and I went to Fred Meyer to buy it, because <laughs> they used to have good CD selection yeah. in the 90s, and is right by my house. And so I went to Fred Meyer to buy that Goldfinger CD, and um, there, was, there was one that looked different that was in, like, the new releases. And I was like, oh, uh... I guess I'll try this one. It said it had just came out, and that was Hangups. <laughs> and so I think I like, I think I accidentally bought Hangups like the week it nice. came out. I remember Superman's the first track, and obviously just being like in love right off the yeah. bat. But that was another one where the lyrics are just so poignant throughout. And uh, this was my first listen. I was loving this CD. I'm playing it in the living room speakers. Um, I'm there with my mom <laughs> and my little brother, who is five. Yeah. He is five. <laughs> and we're listening to it. Great melodies, great lyrics, you know. And then, uh, like, halfway through the record, you get that, so fuck, I'm all by myself. Yep. You left me all by myself with that fucked up thing. And I just remember running like the fucking Roadrunner <laughs> over to the CD player, turning it off and taking it to my room, like, don't take away my fucking new CD. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Random story aside, do you think that the eyes on the project right now and the success of the Kickstarter is going to help you secure maybe some harder-to-get interviews that you were working on? Uh, I hope so. There's not really... (laughs) There hasn't been as much hard-to-get as I expected when we started. Yeah? You know, the community is so tight-knit that... Everybody kind of knows everybody. And there, I mean, there's some... When we first started this, Ska wasn't about to be everywhere again this last fall. And since then, all these festivals have come out and all these bands are putting out new records. And it's like, oh, yeah. okay, I guess this was a really good time to do this. But yeah, I mean, I guess the one, the pie in the sky one would be to get Gwen Stefani to be in the movie, obviously. No doubt was Fuck a huge yeah. Well, and you got Tom DeMont, right? Yeah, that was amazing. That's amazing. But, uh, but I think once we get yeah, the community would be, to a certain point, we'll just unleash everybody tweet at Gwen Stefani that she needs to be in this movie. <laughs> and we'll see if we can make a That's big enough great, blip man. where she notices. Yeah, I mean, you've got, you've got the sublime dudes in it. You know, you got DeMont. Yeah. I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe get a little push. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not even that we're missing that part of the story because Tom Dumont was great and sat down with us for a long time and talked about early No Doubt and they really were a big part of the ska scene for as much as they Huge. weren't playing ska when they got big. Um, it's not that we're missing that part of the story. It's more that, you know, wouldn't it be great if we put Gwen Stefani in the movie and then a million people who don't know anything about ska get to see it because... You know, it's more accessible. It's like, oh, Gwen Stefani's in a Well, and on top of that, dude, we just want to see all these uh, faces, you know? 
We we want the, as the fans, we want everybody in it, you know. Right, which has been tough. Like the number one thing, I get probably four emails, three Facebook messages, and two Instagram messages, and a tweet every day from somebody who's like, <laughs> "Oh man, you got to include my friend's cousin's band. They were huge in Sheboygan or wherever." Or, yeah, you know, and it's like mm. I look up every single one of those bands, and we're making a probably ninety minute to two-hour movie here and we've already interviewed go with the two-hour just go with that <laughs> no i know <laughs> and we'll do a bunch of deleted scenes but it's like we can't include everybody and yet i really want to yeah there's definitely some interviews we've shot that aren't going to make it in the movie and that's a huge bummer we got to figure out how we can get all that stuff out to people i don't know if we're going to do like a a web series after the fact or just a sequel <laughs> you do you could do a web series leading up to it as well like you that's could, one thing you gotta that, know what's um, gonna be in the movie and what's not which is <laughs> tricky well i mean once you're once you're yes. finished yes you know because it's gonna take a while once you finish the edit to then get it into production and and actually release it and like when um say what you want about the world has no idea movie mm -hmm. i don't know if you're mm -hmm. familiar with that but um I was in a tiny bit of it and was on the tour mm -hmm. for it. When we were leading up to the release of it, the director put up, I think, seven or eight little, like, three-minute deleted scenes oh, cool. once a week or yeah. something, just kind of building up to the release. And it was it was pretty cool, actually. It worked. I think it worked well to get some... to, to renew that excitement because right. it had been a while since, you know, from when you announce to when you actually drop right. the Right, we're going to finish this Kickstarter here in July. You know, we're doing this big push right now, and everybody's talking about it. And then the movie's not going to come out for at least eight months or something. <laughs> so there will be yeah. a little bit of, yeah. of uh, fall off in the people paying attention to it. So that's that's a great idea, and we can definitely put out unreleased stuff. That is something we're doing for all the Kickstarter backers, though along the way is we're going to start showing clips and things to people as a way of saying, Hey, thanks for getting on board early with this thing. Yeah. And as we're in the editing room, as soon as something is clearly going to be deleted, but is interesting, I don't mind. I'll just put it up for the, for the Kickstarter people. At least it's, it's not as much of a public forum. It's just, Hey, you guys are part of this. You should see some of the stuff we've got. Yeah. I think that's awesome. I remember when uh, you sent me, hey, I've got enough of these down. I made a sizzle reel. Would you want to look over it real quick? And I was like, do I? <laughs> yeah. And I remember watching this like seven minute thing and you saying it had to get down to under five. Yeah. And I was just standing there in my kitchen on my phone watching it over and over again. <laughs> like, I can't wait for this to come out. <laughs> like, those teasers, I think, are going to get people so excited. Yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting thing is like having to update the sizzle reel. It was like the first week of filming, we had some really great interviews. And so we cut it together. And that was just to show people that we wanted to interview, you know, to have yes. something to show that's not like, hey, I'm just this kid making this movie. You don't know anything about me. Nobody saw my first movie. Please be in my movie. Yeah. But if you have something you can show them, it's like here we're taking this seriously and we're doing this you know to the best of our ability while still you know sleeping on couches and floors and trying to 
scrape it all together. So it was. Tell me this: who was the first? Who was the first one on board? You didn't have anything. You had. You didn't have shit to show. You just said, "Hey, this is a passion project." Would you be interested in talking with me? Who who jumped on right away? Well, we had a little bit of a leg up because Ray, the producer, and I have been in the ska world for so long that we did have yeah. some connections, which is kind of what gave us the you know, the courage to do this thing. It's like, well, at least we know, you know, these five people, and they probably know five people, and they know five people. The first interview we shot was actually the Voodoo Glow Skulls when they came through town here in Bend. And we nice. had just decided to make the movie, like just barely. And I saw they were coming to town. And I was like, well, I, I might as well start somewhere. And we didn't know them. And I reached out and said, hey, I see you're going to be in town. Is there any chance we can grab an interview, you know, after sound check and before the show or whatever? And they were really cool and said, Sure, but it was for me, it was a logistical nightmare trying to set everything up in the venue in between sound check and the show and get it to at least look decent. This was the first thing we were going to shoot, the first footage we'd have. <laughs> like, yeah, also, you know, I only had an hour and a half total, including setup and breakdown, and I would have loved to have had a two hour interview. So, yeah, yeah, but they were the yeah. first ones, and then it was two months before we did our first West Coast run. And that was like Ray had done some work with Angelo from Fishbone in Japan. And so we talked to him and he said, sure, okay. You know, he's, he's a cool guy. He's kind of up for anything. And then once we had Angelo on board, we could tell other people, well, Angelo from Fishbone's going to be in it, so you should be in it. Yeah. I think Darren from Goldfinger was another early... Like, I just knew somebody who knew somebody. I think one of their old bass players, not the guy from Hang Ups, but more recent. Yeah. And just, you know, you start putting it out there that you're trying to do a thing, and you'd be surprised who's into the idea and who wants to help you out or be a part of it. Yeah, I mean, all of us performers, there's always going to be a certain part of us that likes to be on stage and likes to be on on camera you know and and talk about these mm -hmm. things but especially with just such a, a a positive community and how so many of these tiny bands are just thrust onto the main stage and into the spotlight uh there's some really crazy stories and not the kind of stories that that exist anymore in this era of like you know post a&R right. and you know major label yeah, declines that and thing happened right right at the end of <laughs> the music industry and it's funny because if you listen to those real big fish albums they were painfully aware of it as well oh, yeah. they knew what was going on <laughs> people could see the writing on the wall i think like because napster was right then right like just after turn the radio yeah up, i think or that just was after, 2000 why do they rock so hard or yeah. late 99 yeah. early 2000 when Ska died, so did the music industry. I feel like it was it was kind of like um, like KRS One called it edutainment. Mm -hmm. You know, like listening to a Real Big Fish album was like, you know, you hear the first one and they're going, they're still bitter, but they're kind of going like, fuck yeah, sure, we'll sign our lives away to you. Like we'll see what happens, right. you know. And then the next record, they're like, 
so you fucking hate us now because we're mm-hmm. popular this blows right you know and after that it just keeps going more and more cynical and bitter and and you know you're kind of going damn like all of us are in bands just trying to get by and you know <laughs> everyone's trying to get where they're at you know and they're going fuck they don't even like where right. they're at like this is a it's a brutal well, it's, game you learn something listening to those yeah, records <laughs> it's tough you know for a real big fish to be you know the face of it for a little while and to they kind of yeah. suffered the brunt of the backlash of of people hating on ska music after it was popular like even people who loved ska didn't like them <laughs> and uh, no, nobody gave the boston shit about clueless but you know real big fish is in basketball and now you know they're too big <laughs> yeah yeah, or uh, say Ferris being in 10 Things I Hate About You. Yes, yes, yeah. totally. It's, it is interesting. It's interesting how nobody, kind of nobody hates the Bostones. <laughs> the people that, some people yeah. hate that song. Some of the Scott haters. But that, that was one of my favorite things about the live album they put out right after that, is when Nate starts playing the guitar riff, and Dickie goes, I think we all know this fucking right. song. <laughs> <laughs> like, like even they're acknowledging, yeah, this has been played to death, but uh, we know that you will kill us if we don't play it. Right, so. <laughs> and that's true of any band that has one giant hit. So, before we wrap up, tell me about, first of all, the practical side of what is your goal for release of this album, and then beyond what you expect you can do, what do you hope that you can do as far as you know release with this yeah. film um sure so we've hit our kickstarter goal which means we're making the movie and the more we raise the better it'll be and the faster we can get it done by hiring people who are very good at editing and post-production and all that um but once we have a finished film we're definitely gonna submit it to some film festivals and try to get it out there in that way great but we'd love to talk to some distributors and wouldn't it be great if this movie was in Best Buy in the music section or wherever Target, you know, that would be crazy. But that's, yeah. that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, maybe if Gwen Stefani's on the cover, <laughs> we can get in Target. Yeah. At the very least, at the very least, you could have an end cap at every independent record store. Yeah. You know. And that's, that's probably more the realistic route is the faces we already have on the cover, I think, get us in indie record stores. Because indie record stores support indie movies and projects like this. Yeah. But I think for me, the real wouldn't-it-be-cool thing is like getting it on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something where people who aren't the diehard fans might see it. Because... You know, I've watched a lot of documentaries about music scenes that I wasn't a part of and didn't super care about, and I learned stuff. And I'm, you know, it it opens up the world of of ska from from being this thing that people think of as a novelty to somebody sitting on their couch browsing Netflix and watching it and saying, "Oh wow, there was a lot more to it than I thought," and maybe I could stop making fun of it (laughs) but that's (laughs) you know best case scenario is we convince 
200 people that ska is actually a cool thing and it's important and it changed a lot of lives for the better. Maybe cut it out with the real big fish jokes. Yeah, <laughs> I feel you on that. No more memes, okay? The uh, last film I was introduced to, uh, and I'm speaking of Here's to Life, ah. the story, the refreshments. Um, the last film I was lucky enough to see, just got a little private screening you did. Do you have any ambition to do screenings? Yeah, and, you yeah know, definitely. One of the Kickstarter goals is a private screening, or rewards is a private screening, and it's expensive, but, you know, we put up there things like $1,000 to be an associate producer and $3,000 to be an executive producer and stuff like that, thinking, this is silly, no one's yeah. going to buy these, but you have to have them on Kickstarter. And those, yeah. the $1,000 tier sold out in that first week, I think in four days. So those are all gone. Wow. But we do still have like a $5,000 thing where we will come to your town, rent a theater, and you can bring as many people as you want that will fit in that theater. And we'll screen it before any big premieres. That's great. We are also, you know, starting to think about stretch goals. Like, what if we, what if we hit $100,000? Well, we got to do something pretty big yeah. for the fans if we do that. And so we're talking about, like, why don't we do four or five big premieres, you know, say like New York, LA, DC, Tokyo, Denver, wherever there's a ska scene. Yeah. But let's do it and invite all our Kickstarter backers for free, do a big premiere and get some of these bands to come out and play after the movie. Yeah. Because I think that kind of a little tour for it would be a really cool thing. But obviously that's crazy expensive and hard to organize. So that'll be a... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you'd have to kind of just get whatever band is in that area, you know, local to that yeah, region. Which is why I said L.A., New York, Denver. Sure. Because we know some bands there. Yeah. But, yeah, I think doing that would be really, really fun. Um, unfortunately, if you do that, then the film festivals don't like you as much. Everybody wants to be the premiere. So mm. that's something I learned with the last one is you only get one premiere and then... Uh, you're kind of looked at as, uh, oh, that movie's already out. People don't. Old news. So. Well, I mean, maybe if it goes well with those submissions, you know, maybe you get in the door with right. one of those, and it doesn't mean that you can't do these shows after right. the fact. And that would be the way we would do it. It's hard, though, to present something in June of 2018 and say, hey, give us a whole bunch of money and we'll show this movie to you in, like, nine months. Yeah. And you can invite all your friends, but I hope you still live in the town you live in. Nine months is a long time. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, I know. That, that stuff is all, like, for after it's all said and done. But one thing I've been thinking about that would be really fun is once this movie is out in the world and I've got Blu-rays and T-shirts and stickers and whatever else, I think I want to take it around to, like, comic book conventions. I think that, that crossover nice. between comic book and geek culture and ska music is pretty pretty big i could see that so like some of the smaller ones where it's not too expensive to rent a booth and just run a trailer and i think that's how i want to tour the movie at comic cons (laughs) because you'd already be be there there anyway (laughs) it's just more fun to have a booth someplace to put all the stuff that i buy well i am super 
happy for you, super proud of you, super jealous. Like I've said, if you need a guy to carry your bags, <laughs> call me up. <laughs> um, man, I can't wait for this to come out. I appreciate you coming on here and talking about it. Where can people support the film? We're at Ska Movie on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And skamovie.com is the website. And there's pretty much just a link to the Kickstarter on that website. So if you go to skamovie.com, it's right there. Great. Taylor Morden, thank, thank you. you very much. All right, that is our show. Thank you guys for listening. Please check out skamovie.com. And if you like this show, I imagine some of you are not familiar with me. You can go back. There's 45 other episodes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a good rating. Spread the word about independent music here at the Take 92 podcast. And I'm going to leave you with a little ad featuring some familiar voices for Pick It Up. Hey, everybody. This is Aaron from Real Big Fish. There's going to be a documentary about ska in the 90s. Steve from the Pie Tasters. Donate some money to this Kickstarter. It's going to be good. He's talking to everybody. You want to hear these stories. Hi, I'm Monique from Safe Ferris, and I really encourage you guys to help support the making of this film. It's a really amazing genre, and we all love it, and our story deserves to be told. Nobody's really told it yet. So support this documentary. Help get it made. Do your part. Spread the good word about ska music. You don't want to miss this shit, okay? To find out more about the project and back us on Kickstarter, go to skymovie.com. That's skymovie.com. Pick it up. Pick it up. Go. Is that pocket face? How did that get in here? I didn't mean to play that. Taylor would kill me if I played that. His high school band, I would never, never would do that. Peace.